Welcome to episode number 35 of Off the Shelf. And all of our questions, all of our searching, when we are wrestling, you don't let go. And all of our fears and doubts, all of our anxious thoughts, when we are restless, still we are held. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Hi, my name is Rod Bergen, and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Off the Shelf podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to ask questions and to help you, our listener, find the answers to those questions. God is not afraid of our questions. I have four children and eight grandchildren, and I love it when one of them is a question. You should not be afraid to ask questions. If you truly understand the love your Heavenly Father has for you, it should cause any fear to disappear. As the Apostle John said in 1 John 4:18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The opposite of love is fear. Fear is focused on yourself, while love is focused on others. If you fear that God is going to punish you, you don't understand his love for you. It is fear of God's punishment that is driven out by love. People cannot love God and fear his punishment at the same time. We want you to know what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Off the Shelf is primarily directed at followers of the message of William Branham and former followers like ourselves. Off the Shelf is now being heard in over 100 countries, and we are glad you could join us. Today, I am delighted to welcome John Collins to Off the Shelf. John is the author of two books, Stone Mountain to Dallas, The Untold Story of Roy Alonza Davis, and... Jim Jones, The Malachi for Elijah Prophecy. John is also the author of the Seek the Truth Apologetics website. Links to John's books and the website can be found on the offtheshelf.life page for this podcast. And as his day job, John is also an IT professional. For those that are new to this podcast, followers of William Branham refer to themselves as being in The Message which is a code word for being a follower of William Branham. We're going to talk about the usage of that term a little later in the show. John was raised in The Message, and his grandfather, Willard Collins, was the pastor of Branham Tabernacle for many years, the same church that William Branham pastored starting back in the 1930s. John, welcome to Off the Shelf. Thank you, Rod. It's good to be here. John, you were born and raised in The Message. What was that like? Well, you know, if you've been any part of um, the movement that has looked at the websites that are up and seen the things that we've had to say, you wouldn't expect me to say this, but uh, we, for at least from my standpoint, we actually had a a good time in the message. The churches that I went to, the people were very friendly, very good people. Um, 
we were closer together, I would say, than than probably was healthy. But at the time, we did not know that. And um, I, you know, growing up, I went from moving from cities from Arizona to South Carolina, and we went to many message churches, you know, across the country, each of them just slightly different, but it was pretty much the same. The people, at least from my experience, were genuinely good people. And I, I would agree with you, John. I think having come into the message myself uh, when I was just finishing first year university and my my story is in detail in the first and two episodes, first and second episodes of, of the Off the Shelf podcast. Uh, having raised our kids in the message, people are very friendly, warm, very close. And, and we'll talk about this. That's one of the problems too. It's insular, it's self-focused, but it's a very safe environment in a lot of ways. Exactly. You know, and knowing what I know now, I see these churches as very dangerous. But whenever you're in it, you're in this tight, close-knit close, close -knit group of people, and they're more than just your friends. They're your family, and they're the people who are, they believe they're going to be raptured up while the rest of the Christian churches are here on earth. And they, you know, you're growing up with this mindset that you believe that you're a part of something that's more special than anybody else in the city. Absolutely. You know, when when you're when you're in that type of environment, it's very hard to leave because it becomes like a security blanket. Yeah. And Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are not dissimilar in that kind of cultural framework that people live in. Right. Now, I will say that my experience may not match. Uh, other people who were born and raised in the message. <clears throat> As you said, I, I'm the grandson of Willard Collins, who was um, the pastor for many years at Branham's Tabernacle. And we were, I call it cult royalty. <laughs> we, were, <laughs> we were people that, you know, we didn't have blessings beyond what other people had, except for in certain areas. But we had a lot of people that looked up to us. I could, uh, up up until 2012, when all of this started, I could walk into any The Message church, and instantly I would have the pastor calling me to either speak, pray, or sing, just because I was a Collins. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it was unusual. But I was... It, to some degree, I did have blessings more than other people who were born and raised in the message or came in later. I was born under one of William Branham's prophecies to my grandfather, one that my grandfather tells often from behind or told often from behind the pulpit until 2012. But I was born under the blessing from William Branham to my grandfather, all of your children and all of your grandchildren will be saved. And this, you know, this was my eternal, eternal security blanket while I was in the cult. I, I had free salvation. <laughs> Just like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It was, you know. What's interesting, I, I have an aunt who was born directly under that same blessing. She got it before I did. And she left the cult when she was age 16 and has never looked back. <laughs> So growing up, there's this, 
there's this cognitive problem that I had. She was under the same blessing as me, and her hair was about as short as my mine was, probably a little bit longer. And she didn't follow the Pentecostal dress code, didn't follow the Pentecostal haircuts, but she was saved in the same way I was saved, which was confusing to me. <laughs> Meaning, saved being that you had the prophecy, so you couldn't, you couldn't, you really couldn't get unsaved. Exactly. I mean, you either had to accept the fact that that William Branham was a false prophet and this prophecy failed, or, or somehow, you know, we we both had the free ticket to heaven, basically, and as did the other children and grandchildren. So was this prophecy made publicly on a tape, or was it just made to your grandfather? It, like a few that my grandfather tells, I, I believe it was one that he told in private to my grandfather. Yeah. So... You know, I I take it kind of with a grain of salt. There were so many prophecies told to so many different people in private, and you talk to each one of them individually, and it was the greatest prophecy William Branham ever gave. But then they, you know, they don't really align with each other. No, and, and I know, you know, hearing some stories, there are people who on their deathbed have, basically confessed he lied yeah the prophecy that he told me was going to happen didn't happen right right and i you know one of the problems that i see in this group is that william branham would often make statements of assumption but because of his elevated status among people something that he said as assumption was much more than something that I would say as assumption. Yeah. And something that he would predict that was simply a, uh, a statement of, of, I assume this might happen. People took those kind of statements as prophecies and, and they went to their graves believing them as prophecies. Yes. It, it would be like if I would say that the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl you would laugh at me because the Chiefs are highly unlikely to do this, but if he were to say it, the entire group of people would be rooting for the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and people that haven't been in the message don't really understand Branham's special status as a prophet. Exactly. Although we keep challenging people, so... Find, find us a prophecy that William Branham made on a tape that's clearly a before-the-fact prophecy, and then show me clearly its unambiguous fulfillment. Right. Nobody's brought one of those to us. And they laugh when you say, oh, ha, 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 ha. There's lots of them. Okay, just give us one. Right. Just one single prophecy. And nobody has to date. Right. And I will say that growing up, in the message under this type of mentality is a bit different than growing up outside of this mentality in the areas of prophecy because we were taught, those of us growing up, we were taught from birth that every single thing that the man said had more value than what somebody else said. Yeah. So whenever he is making these prophecies, and we're looking at them as the ultimate truth, we're not looking at them in the same way that the Bible would look at prophets and prophecy. 
according to the way the Bible lays out the structure of prophecy and prophets, has very little to do with the man speaking, but more to do with the voice that's speaking through him. So if he were to make a statement that is pro prophetic, and it's coming from a divine being speaking through his voice box, the divine being already knows what is going to happen. So if it were to fail, then the divine being, being himself had failed. So for us looking at the, this man who's making random assumptions and random predictions, some of them happening, some of them not happening, it's very difficult to call that a biblical prophet. Yeah, I, I agree with you. John, you refer to the message as being a cult. Why do you call it that? Well, it's interesting. The word cult itself is not, is not that bad of a term. Until about 1978, it was just simply what the word intended. A cult is a following of people devoted to a certain cause. Yeah. The early Christians, if you read, I've read uh, Irenaeus' book against heresies, and I've read um, uh, Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, and they're talking about all of the different sects, S-E-C-T-S, of people that are followers of a certain cause. And they refer to each one of them, in today's language, it would be the word cult. Um, you can also apply it to political figures, political movements, and you can apply it to uh, even entertainment figures. I could easily say that Garth Brooks has a cult following. But I can't say that Garth Brooks has a dangerous cult following. And that's really the key difference. Um, and, in a cult, you're a follower who is devoted to a cause, but you as your individual self have chosen to be part of that cause, and you're individually active in that cause. In a destructive cult, you have a central figure who is manipulating you to his opinion for that cause, and he, through manipulation, through control of behavior, control and hiding of information, control of thought and control of emotion is manipulating you to be part of his cause, whether you want to or not. Over a long period of, of time, this becomes destructive. So I refer to the message as a destructive cult because there are many things that we have found were hidden from us for decades. And it's very easy to see and identify the different areas of control. Yeah, and ultimately it's about aberrant behavior, behavior that's not, that is destructive and, and creates all sorts of problems with people once they're engaged in that negative behavior. Exactly. They, you know, I found in the work that you and I have done, uh, through the websites and support groups, one of the most common questions we get whenever somebody comes out of this destructive cult is, if William Branham is not the prophet for our day and we're not to follow him, who are we supposed to follow? And then from the other side of this, the people who are still in the cult, refusing to leave, they say, I'm a follower. I'm a follower of William Branham. Who are you a follower of? Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, they have become so dependent on following somebody that they're actually unable to lead themselves. 
And that is the result of a destructive cult. Yeah. And ultimately, what the Christian church is about is following, becoming a true follower of Jesus Christ and not a follower of somebody else. Exactly. So take the Christian church as an example and take any other healthy group as an example. They all display the same properties. In a healthy environment that is not a destructive cult, your individual self is is amplified and supported and fine-tuned for the cause. So Jesus said to the people, I'll make you fishers of men. What he was saying is, I'm going to make you leaders. I'm going to take each one of you individually, I'm going to lift you up, and I'm going to make you a leader towards the cause. If you take Christianity, if you take any healthy support group, they all are individually boosting people as leaders, each in a different way. They're, they each have individual strengths and weaknesses, but they're creating leaders, not followers. A destructive cult is creating followers, not leaders. And that goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And, and what Christianity is at its essence is a message of love, which builds people up. Exactly. So, John, we've been talking recently because you had an interview with CBC uh, for those folks in the U.S. or outside. And, and this podcast is now heard in over 100 countries. Uh, CBC is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I live in Canada. John lives in the U.S. And in a recent interview on CBC, which is our Canadian national broadcasting system, you said that the people in the message were isolated. What did you mean by that? What's your reasoning behind this? Yeah, the in the interview, we were discussing exactly the question that you asked me before this. Why do I say that the message is a cult? And I was, I was describing to the person interviewing me the difference between a cult group of people and people who are in a healthy environment. And specifically, I was describing William Branham's The Message Cult and how it differed from Christianity as a whole. And we were isolated, maybe not physically, but we were isolated theologically and mentally to believe that we were an elite group of Christian people and that all the other Christian people in the city or in the country or in the world, because they didn't have the same belief set that we had, they were inferior to our superior status. We felt that we were, we were the ones who were holier than them, and because of this, God would take us as we called ourselves the little bride. Um, we, we, taught, we were taught that we were of a higher status and we would be raptured before the rest because we were better than them. And yeah, and that, that whole teaching ends up creating a whole lot of spiritual pride and isolationism. I agree with that. Right. So John, you uh, talked about uh, attending a number of message churches as you were growing up. Uh, for those that might not be aware of it, the message doesn't have an organizational structure. They pride themselves in being 
uh, non-denominational, and they all claim to be in the same non-denominational religion. But we know that, in fact, there are a whole lot of different subsects, subcults within the message. What, what insights do you have into these different message churches that uh, some others might not have? Well, as I said earlier, my family moved quite a bit growing up. And we lived in cities around the United States and went to some of the bigger churches that I'm sure many are familiar with and some of the smaller churches that many probably have not heard of, uh, many within the, the message cult. Um, and it, I will say this, as good as many of the church's people were, it was very confusing to me when I would go from one church on one end of the country to another church on another end of the country. The foundational structure of the message cult differs from Christianity in many ways, but in this one aspect alone, I believe it, it elevates the likelihood that two particular message churches will be so polar opposite of each other that they won't even they won't even fellowship together. Um, within the, the message teaching, you are taught that it is uh, heavily based off of the works that you do, whether or not you're righteous. You've got the Pentecostal dress code that if women were to break this, then immediately they're unrighteous. And you've got for the men, you've got many different things that you abstain from or you forbid yourself to do. And these things, basically, you're earning your salvation. You're the one, all the weight of your salvation is on your shoulders in these churches. Whereas in mainstream Christianity, you look for Christ to be the one to, that has done the work. Exactly. Exactly. You know? and, and, and the message is Jesus plus William Branham. Well, it's Jesus plus William Branham, but also Jesus plus William Branham plus here are these things that you must do in order to be saved. Well, and, and, and that's exactly where the plus William Branham comes in. So you focus on the plus William Branham and eventually it becomes, well, what did William Branham say? Not what does the Bible say? And in fact, that's where we got the name for this podcast is when there's a discrepancy between the Bible and what William Branham said, you were always told, well, just put that passage of the Bible <laughs> on the shelf yep. and, and, and then pray about it. And eventually God will explain it to you. And that's what we're trying to do in this podcast is haul all of this stuff back off the shelf and show people that in fact, they were wrong to put it on the shelf. It should <laughs> never gone on the shelf to, to start with. Exactly. So, you know, looking back at all of this, I, again, I wish I knew then what I knew now. Yeah, but yeah. whenever, when I left the message, I basically took the approach that I, I wanted to present it myself to other people, other Christians, as though I'm a brand new person, had never heard of Jesus Christ, had never heard of the Bible. I'm completely open to learning, and I want to start over from scratch. And I started reading the Bible uh, from cover to cover, 
I'll bet during the first year, I want to say I read it at least four to five times. Um, in the years to come, I'll bet I have probably read cover to cover 10 times and studying details as I'm going. And <clears throat> one of the things that I've came to learn in the New Testament, it describes the problem that the Pharisees had. The, Moses came with the law. And the law had approximately, uh, if I remember correctly, there were 300 blessings if you obeyed all of the many laws, and there were 300 curses if you started failing at any point of these laws. And these laws were written many, many decades before Jesus came, and many of the laws had were, were for a time and place much different than the time and place that was whenever the um, Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And so there was this huge problem. What do we do if there's this law that doesn't even present a, uh, any way to fulfill it in our day? So they created lawyers. And the lawyers would come and examine Scripture and examine what people were doing, and they they would add to the law. So they were making the law bigger. They would add additional rules, additional regulations. And you had the Pharisees, who Jesus harshly condemned. These Pharisees were the ones who were trying to live by all these laws. They're struggling, and they were, they were rebuking anybody who didn't try to, try to fulfill the laws their way, insomuch that they valued the religion more than they valued the reason for the, the religion. And... Growing up in all of these different churches, you had one church with one set of rules and another church with a completely different set of rules. And, you know, it was confusing to me. You could go yeah. to one church uh, on the West Coast and they weren't allowed, the women weren't allowed to wear open-toed shoes. And you go to one on the East Coast and they wore sandals, which is right, which is wrong. What appears to have happened is that message pastors today are attempting to be both lawyer and Pharisee and apply the many things that William Branham was speaking against during the age of civil rights and the Cold War, and they're trying to invent new rules to fulfill what, what happened years and years ago. Yeah, so, and I always... I always had a strong inclination to push back against that stuff. I remember somebody was preaching in the church at one point in time and made a statement that people shouldn't wear suspenders because they'd <laughs> seen a singing group called the suspenders and they thought, oh, these suspenders were supposed to be cool. So they, they decided for themselves, it was a personal opinion, decided but preached over the pulpit that wearing suspenders was wrong. So I, I remember after the service was over, I walked up to this individual who had just finished preaching. And uh, I said, so you think wearing suspenders is wrong? And he kind of looked at me quizzically. And I was wearing a suit. And I opened my suit jacket and I was wearing suspenders. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> oh, oh, right. I just completely talked. And I said, you know why I wear suspenders? And he said, uh, no, no. Why? I said, it's to hold my pants up. Now you could also wear a belt, but an old farmer once told me never trust a man 
who wears both a belt and suspenders. And I just turned around and walked away. <laughs> and he never yeah. preached on that again. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, I've learned since then that there's a strong element of groupthink that is happening. Yes. We've gone decades and decades since William Branham's death. And it's interesting because you can almost point to the the theology of the minister before he joined the message, and you can predict which direction their church is going to go. You have Pentecostal ministers who were Pentecostal before hearing William Branham, and they're so heavily Pentecostal, and they won't fellowship with another church, even in the same city, who had a, mess, had a Methodist minister who came in and joined the message, and he's leaning towards the Method, Methodist theology within yeah, his message. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, and you also have people like, uh, who, who are following people like Lee Vale, who have taken the message and taken bits out of it and run into places. You just like, how do you get there? Because ultimately they're now Arians or maybe Nestorians or some kind of mixture between the two. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And you look and say, well, these people aren't even in any reasonable sense of the word. They're not Christians. They are, they're as much maybe as a Christian as a Jewish witness would, would be called a Christian, but they're not really. They would be considered by, by the historical Christian church for the last 2000 years to be well outside the parameters of orthodoxy, which is just means right teaching. And right. these guys have got there, and I don't, like for the life of me, I don't know how they got there, but they have. It's bizarre. Right. Well, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to analyze what happened to us, specifically what happened to me. But in studying the, the sermons from William Branham, it's, it's almost like when you study the Bible, if you read the Bible for what it says— you get a picture, and that picture is formed in your mind based off of what you're reading, based off of your perception of what's happening. But then if you study the cultural aspects of the statements contained in that passage, and you study the history that was during that time period, and you study all of the different mythologies that surround that particular passage of Scripture— it can sometimes look entirely different than what you first thought, than what you first read. Whenever you examine William Branham's sermons in the same way, it's very much the same thing. If you go, he, he was an evangelist who went to many different churches, you know, around the world. And what was interesting is when I started noticing his difference in theology from church A to church B. He's speaking, in one example, he's speaking before a group of Trinitarian people. And at the end, he has this prayer, and he says, Father, thank you for we who have accepted the Trinity, the Trinity accepted Jesus, the per third person of the Trinity. I can't remember his exact words. Yeah. But he is before a group of Trinitarian people openly accepting the Trinity. Then... I think in the same month, he goes to another church that is anti-Trinitarianism, 
And he says basically that anybody who accepts the Trinity has accepted the mark of the beast. And to a person who didn't travel with him from church A to church B, they would think that he's anti-Trinitarian. But to a person who was there and heard him accept the Trinity and then goes to the new church and condemns himself for accepting the Trinity, they'd be very confused. What is this man doing? <laughs> he sounds like a good politician. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are going to end the podcast there for this week as we try to keep our episodes under 30 minutes. We invite you to join us next week for part two of our interview with John Collins. If you have a question or comment, please feel free to go to our website at offtheshelf.life. There is a comment section at the bottom of every episode's webpage, or you're welcome to send me an email to rod at offtheshelf.life. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. The questions come, but you You are faithful